Welcome to Medical Educator Talks. Welcome to our podcast, Medical Educator Talks, where members from the Developing Medical Educators team at the Academy of Medical Educators discuss topics of interest with experienced colleagues from their field. In today's episode, we're in conversation with Professor Liz Mossop, talking about widening participation. Hello and welcome to another episode of Medical Educator Talks. This podcast is brought to you by the Developing Medical Educators Group, who are a branch of the Academy of Medical Educators. My name is Nav, and I am a Foundation Year 3 doctor working in Southwest London. Today, we will be discussing issues surrounding widening access and participation, and joining me to share her much appreciated insight and expertise is Professor Liz Mosser, veterinary surgeon and deputy vice chancellor for student development and engagement at the University of Lincoln. Welcome to the show, Liz. Thank you very much, Nav. Great to be here. So before we get into talking about widening access to participation, and I know I've already said a little bit about you, but would you mind telling us a bit about yourself? Sure, yes. Always a painful thing to do, but uh, I'm happy to try my best. So, um, yes, as you mentioned, um, I'm a vet by background, so I qualified from the University of Edinburgh um, as a veterinary surgeon. And and I guess like like many of us, you know, had every intention of, of a clinical career and, you know, didn't really think beyond being a vet when I was a student. Um, but um, as I as I started sort of working in veterinary practice, you know, I absolutely loved being a vet in practice, but I got really interested in education and teaching and, and um really through teaching veterinary nurses which is um, often done through workplace-based teaching um, in in our context um, and so um, I actually signed up to do a, a master's in medical education um, when I was about oh probably six years out in practice um, and you know of course got interested in in how we learn and you know all those all those interesting things around teaching um, and it just so happened um, I was in Nottingham at the time um, and uh, there was a new vet school setting up um, just up the road um, as part of the University of Nottingham so um, I was really lucky and 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 managed to get a, a post as a foundation member of staff at that vet school um, with you know really very little experience but a, a lot of ideas and and sort of interesting um i guess in, in slightly innovative ideas for for approaching education based you know on my own experiences but also on what i'd learned through through the masters i was doing um so i started out as a, a teaching associate so that's not even a lecturer it's like the lowest academic post you can have um and at the same time i was still working as a vet in in clinical practice mostly in equine practice um and then sort of gradually moved my way up the ranks so, um, you know, finished my master's, really enjoyed that, learned lots from learning from other other uh, professions. So, you know, I was the only vet on the course. So it was always great to hear from, you know, medics and physios and nurses and everybody else really in healthcare about how they did teaching and, you know, different different methods for, 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 for looking after students and all those sorts of things. Um, and then I went on to do a PhD. So I did a PhD um, in uh, professionalism. So thinking about veterinary professionalism, which which is uh, an area that's really close to my heart, you know, really how we how we develop students, not just in clinical skills, but also in obviously those other things that you need to be a, a really effective vet or, or a medic. So that was that was my PhD. Um, and yes, gradually sort of, um, you know, slowly, slowly, as you do in academia, work my way up um, the various different posts and different roles, um, eventually became um, professor of veterinary education, which was, um, you know, 
a lovely achievement and and for me I guess um it was nice because that was done on a, a teaching and learning track so obviously you know, lots of people do sort of you know really high highly important scientific research as part of their academic career but for me it was all about teaching and learning and my research was all around teaching so it was great that Nottingham had a career path that allowed me to do that which is a relatively recent thing in in most universities um and at the time then I was running the curriculum at Nottingham so you know sort of worked my way up up through that and also increasingly doing um lots of faculty level work so working with the medics and other healthcare professions um in the faculty at Nottingham and then the opportunity came up to um apply for the job at Lincoln and I thought well this is interesting very different institution um very different role really uh, you know sort of looking after all subjects not just the ones that I was more familiar with and of course Lincoln doesn't have a vet school so that was a bit of a bit of a difference but we do have a brand new medical school which is great um so uh, yes applied and, and to my surprise was was offered the role of deputy vice chancellor so these days yes as I say I look after all sorts of different subjects everything from medicine through to engineering through to nursing through to drama dance creative advertising lots of different areas um and really sort of influence the student experience as a whole so all, all the way through um the student life cycle so it's a it's a very diverse job as you can imagine lots of different 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 challenges every day um particularly during covid of course but uh, it's it's um, it's a great job i really i really love working here well thank you very much for telling us about your journey i think what you touched upon when you were saying you kind of just had an interest in education and teaching those vet nurses really hammers home what i think a lot of people who might be listening to the podcast feel like my, me, myself included in that, I just kind of love teaching throughout med school. And since graduating and going on to practice, I've loved teaching the colleagues that I kind of work with, the patients as well, which kind of led me to be here in this position, talking to yourself, you know, and it's, I can see the smile on your face as you're talking. So it's so good to see that you still very much enjoy what you do. Yeah, I think, I think it's about, it's about, enjoying communicating with others isn't it and actually if you're a, a sort of sociable person who enjoys you know that interaction with others teaching is a natural part of that and you're absolutely right what you said there about you know teaching is not just about teaching students I've always thought of teaching as being a sort of all-round event you know in my case as a vet you know with my with my clients um you know I was always teaching them about you know what was wrong with their animals and helping them to understand it to get a better outcome for that case and you know of course that's the same for, for you as a doctor um with your patients and you know we, we are we're a team aren't we in healthcare and so we're constantly learning from each other and actually you know being interested in that process really gives you a, an extra sort of um hook to your job doesn't it it makes you enjoy it more because you're not just thinking about yourself and what you need to do but you're also thinking about other people and and how they need to learn and develop and what you can do to help influence that and you know that's part of giving back isn't it which i think is you know what what gets many of us out of bed in the mornings to to want to get on and do our job so yeah i, I completely agree with you now so in your current role now, and obviously you're involved in many, many degrees, are you still involved in the clinical side, veterinary medicine or surgery? So no so I haven't I haven't worked as a clinical vet for several years now um I, I did still do some clinical work when I worked at the vet school um for a time um and, and I I I but the one thing that I have retained all the way through my career is actually still teaching I think that's really really important um you know as as the DVC that looks after teaching I think it would be a little amiss of me to to not do any teaching so I still do um a, fa a fair amount of teaching I have you know personal tutees who I look after and I do teaching on CPD and all those kind of things so you know th there's lots of that that still goes 
things on. But no, clinically, um, I had to step back really when my sort of academic career started to take over. Um, and yes, you get to the point where you have to sort of think, well, which where is my career going and, and, and where where will the balance sit? So unlike um, um, you know, some of my colleagues who have obviously maintained their clinical specialism, um, I stepped back from that and decided that education was going to be my specialism, which, you know, is a slightly different way of doing things. Um, and um, I, you know, sometimes I do miss the clinical side of things because it's just lovely to be out, out doing that. But um, yeah, you know, you still have lots of involvement in my profession. So still do a lot of sort of policy and sitting on committees and all those kind of things and sort of definitely feel like I contribute in, in different ways, which is, you know, important still to me. That's, that's useful to know. Thank you for sharing that. Because I think my next question was going to be, and I know we're not quite on to discuss why not, <laughs> but I think people tussle up between wanting to manage that acad academic and clinical life. And obviously you seem to really enjoy what you do. And my next question was going to be, was it hard leaving that? Do you have any regrets about leaving the clinical side of things? Yeah, I mean, I think I, it was a, it was, difficult you know to, to sort of imagine myself not doing clinical work because I think as a clinician that's very much a part of your identity isn't it you know you you, you sort of you know we, we, we talk about you know well, maybe maybe I'm not a proper vet anymore but I think what I've, I've kind of talked myself into is the fact that actually you know being a vet is obviously all about animal welfare and looking after animals and and, and the people associated with those animals and you know improving impu improving um, human health as well to, to, to many extents and and actually you know I am now contributing to my profession in a different way which means that I still do indirectly influence all those things that I've just mentioned so it's I, I think you're absolutely correct you know it's something that a lot of us have sort of tussled with over over the years and certainly when I when I mentor people it's often a subject that we talk about you know because you, you can't do everything um, you have got to be a little bit strategic at various points in your career and think about well where am I going to focus my efforts and actually you know what is it that really you know really excites me and you know where I really want to really want to be in you know five ten years time um, and and I think sometimes the system you know itself doesn't support you doing everything which I don't know may be a good thing um, but but yes you know those of us who sort of you know you'll you'll look around you and you'll see people um, in medicine as well who very much sort of moved away from sort of doing the day-to-day -day clinical things but still obviously have a, a huge influence over you know policies and how we teach students and all those kind of things so I think it's about thinking about it through a different lens isn't it really and uh, making sure you still feel fulfilled in what you do um, and now I look back and I, I don't have any regrets about leaving clinical practice and I think for me you know what I got out of clinical practice was helping people through helping their animals and of course I'm still very much doing that on a day-to-day -day basis you know helping students is you know and, and and teams who teach students is you know that that's 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 what you know fulfills me and makes me feel like I'm contributing to society so yeah that's useful so thank you so if we go back to what I was originally meant to talk to you about, <laughs> wine and participation and access, obviously you have a very key role in that at Lincoln. So would you mind just for the sakes of our audience who are broadly experienced, just telling us what is meant by widening access and participation, the people that those affect and how we can go about addressing it? Sure. 
So um, I suppose the first thing to say is it's a really big topic. Um, and I think sometimes, you know, when people talk about widening access and widening participation, they'll think about it in a, in a specific area, but actually forget that, you know, actually it covers, it covers a really broad context. So I guess essentially to summarise, what we mean is that anybody with the potential to succeed um, at university, whether that's, you know, studying medicine or, or a different degree, should, should have the opportunity to attend university and, and to be successful at university and to come out with a degree, which obviously is then going to help them in their life and you know um, we can talk about subjects like social, social mobility um, but but that's what we mean by widening access and of course traditionally you know if you think you know several hundred years ago when universities were first in existence um, often it was very much you know the privileged classes who got to go to university um, and of course originally men only as well um, and and that has very much changed over the years which is for the better um, and of course it's very important that we are producing graduates um, in all disciplines who reflect society at large because you know that's what's going to improve our society overall and that's what's going to help us individually to advance but also you know to advance um, society more generally so um, I guess that's the main principle behind um, widening access and widening participation and universities themselves and you know certainly part of my role um, is is all about you know trying to improve our approaches to widening access so thinking about how we encourage students from all sorts of different backgrounds to apply so you know when we when we talk about widening access and, and widening participation you know we think about it in the context of, of gender we think about uh, ethnic diversity we think about um we think about socioeconomic status we think about students who've maybe been in care at some point in their life um, there's all sorts of different contexts and and of course you know there's a there's a lot of intersectionality as well so some some students will fit more than one category and so we have to think about that as well. Um, so universities have, have always been very interested in this um, and of course you know we we are very um, beholden to government policy when it comes to things like widening access so at the moment we're in a situation where um, you know because of the way universities are funded with, with fees and, and caps being lifted you know we can allow more access to more students which is a, a real positive thing um, but of course that brings its own challenges because some students um, from you know specific backgrounds may be put off to, you know, by applying to university because you know of the fees and because not understanding the systems and, and those kind of things so um you know it's very much up to universities to make sure that you know we do um have uh you know programs and policies that help widen access to university and of course the government requires us to do that as well so we have something um in universities called access and participation plans so every university has one um, and within that we will talk about um you know certain areas that we're working on within our access strategies so certain groups of students um, so for us at Lincoln you know we're thinking about students from certain underprivileged backgrounds we're also thinking about students of colour and, and trying to ensure that the ethnic minority diversity of us of our of our student body is appropriate as well um, and obviously then working on specific programs within those those contexts to ensure that you know we we are open to all and you know we do encourage a wide variety of students to apply so I think I've answered all your questions I may yeah, have yeah. come out <laughs> That's a very much. long answer. Sorry. Covered it very thoroughly. <laughs> so I suppose it's probably a bit of a blunt question and maybe the answer to it is obvious, but what's the point yep. in it? If, if, if someone was to ask you, what's the point of putting all this effort to do this? What, what would you respond to that? 
Well, I guess that goes back to um, what I mentioned at the beginning, you know, the graduates that we produce as, as a university and as a university, particularly at Lincoln, you know, we have a very strong, what we call a civic mission. So we believe that we have a really important role to play in our local, regional and, and national society. And so to me, our, the graduates that we produce should reflect, you know, society at large, because that helps to improve our professions it helps to improve you know society in general and you know it, it it makes the world a better place that sounds a bit trite doesn't it but it absolutely does um and also there's an equity and fairness issue in this you know why should it just be that certain groups in society um get the privilege of applying and going to university and succeeding that, that that's not fair and and you know for for, for many of us fairness is, is a really important part of what we do um and i wouldn't want to think i was working in a university that wasn't open to everyone that wouldn't feel right to me you know that's that's not that's not appropriate um you know so so we do have to work hard to to get there with it and and you know no one's saying we we've achieved what we want to achieve um you know there's, there's lots of things we still need to be doing and you know loads of different initiatives that we still need to be thinking about and evaluating and making sure they work but um you know i think i think the fact that universities do you know work really hard and obviously medical schools and vet schools work really hard at thinking about widening access it is a positive um and yes i you know i i think it's really important um to think about potential and you know lots of people have potential but that potential is completely untapped because they you know because of their background or how they've been brought up or how they've grown up or whatever their situation is and that's not fair is it you know we need to be ensuring those people have have the opportunity to to you know fulfill their potential as, as much as anyone else i i couldn't agree more and i think from just personal experience of seeing the long-term effects of this one of the reported benefits as you basically said was talking about how having a diverse workforce you can better meet the needs of your population Absolutely. whether or not that's pets people how, however so when i was working in georgia's a e not too long ago our workforce had many many different healthcare professionals nurses pas doctors who could speak a variety of languages yep. which could meet the very varied and diverse population of tooting, very, very useful. And I think from myself being uh, Asian, speaking a bit of Hindi and Urdu, I could definitely tell when I was interacting with some of my patients, if they spoke a little bit of it, they felt suddenly a bit more at ease yeah. just by the fact, even though I might've just been speaking English, there's just a bit of like hidden culture or unknown culture that just helps you interact with that patient for a better outcome now yeah. i'm not sure if there's i don't know if there's any research looking at the quantitative benefits or outcomes of widening access participation i imagine that's a very difficult thing to accurately study but certainly anecdotally i think it helps yeah i, I agree completely and i think you know there's 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 all sorts of that's why it's important to think about all the different contexts because um, you know, to me, being a good healthcare professional, no matter which which area you, you work in, it's about being an empathetic individual and actually your background and, and how you've been brought up will help you develop you know that empathy for certain other people who you who you may meet in your in your day-to-day -day life and of course you know we can we can we can get good at empathizing with all sorts of different people but actually sometimes you know it's it's like um the phrase you know you you can't be what you can't see um you know sometimes it's actually very hard to to 
um, understand somebody else's background. Uh, and so, you know, the more diversity, as you say, that we have within our professions, the easier that becomes. Easy is probably the wrong word, but, you know, it, it, it points us in the right direction. Um, and and I think, yeah, makes makes for a better world. And, you know, of course, businesses, you know, we know benefit from diversity as well. It's, you know, it's, it's a known fact that, you know, if you have diversity of thought, you're going to have a more successful business. So, and that diversity of thought comes from a diversity of backgrounds. So, you know, it's absolutely common sense, um, but we still have to work on it really hard. So if we, if we scale back to talk about what strategies we can do, universities can do, educators, let's say, yeah. can do to try and help tackle widening access and participation. From my understanding, or for my benefit, I've always split them into like three things, like pre-application measures, yeah. like out programs, then you have application measures at the time to try and make it all very fair yeah. and equal to anyone who's applying. And then maybe post-application, you've gotten into university, but making sure that they feel comfortable in that environment is how I've split it. Now, yeah. I only know a little bit about outreach, having been at the Newcastle Med School and getting involved with different outreach programs there. But would you mind sharing with us, obviously, with your role at university, maybe which of those three to you are most important or are they all equally important just yeah absolutely i think i, I think you're right that they all have a, a really important part to play and that's a really good way to divide it up and i think it's really important to remember that that there are different phases of it and there's no point in having amazing outreach and you know getting loads of fantastic students to apply if then when they join the institution the attrition rates are really high because actually you know the, the curriculum and the environment and the student experience is only set up for one type of student you know that that just doesn't work so you're completely correct you need to think about um, all the phases of the student life cycle and actually I would go beyond that as well and I would also include you know post-graduation and obviously the emphasis on you know any postgraduate training programs you're involved in obviously as doctors that's very well structured but it's quite different in my world of veterinary education and actually you know we need to be thinking about that in the context of postgraduate programs as well and ensuring that it's not just one size fits all and actually you know our curricula and the way we teach and the way we look after our graduates is appropriate for any graduate and um, not just not just one one type of graduate so um uh, i think um from the point of view of what we do at lincoln um we we do have um obviously a a set of outreach programs that you know all universities will have uh, most universities are part of sort of um centralized well not centralized that's the wrong word um sort of ofs funded groups of of universities as well so they're called the uni connect programs where actually universities get together and work on access as a as a um you know a, a, a topic um and you know um have budget and money to run different programs um, what we do know about those programs I mean you mentioned earlier research into outreach and of course there's been lots of research into widening access what we the main thing we do know um, is that um, you know it, it, it helps if they are sort of longitudinal interventions so instead of just rocking up and doing something with a group of students actually what universities have to be thinking about is formalized programs where the number of touch points are you know over time and start early as well in in students careers uh, and of course you know there's a huge variety of different programs everything from mentoring and individual type approaches to you know big summer schools and all sorts of different things you will have come across um, as a medical student and that's great to hear you were involved with some I have to say personally I always feel that the student to student interventions are often the best um, and you know this comes back to sort of the power of role models if you're going into a school as a medical student and saying look 
I'm a medical student, you can do this too. I think that's incredibly powerful. And, you know, that individualised advice and, you know, sort of site guidance that you give is, is very inspiring and is far better than someone like me going and going one well, applied to medical school. So, you know, it, 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 I think that's that's really powerful. There's some great programmes. There's a, there's a really nice um, programme at the Royal Vet College called Animal As Aspirations, where, um, you know, a group of students who, who are from very diverse backgrounds who, you know, feel really strongly about this have got together and, you know, do lots of interventions and school outreach and that's fabulous you know supported by the university which is great because obviously you need money to do these things but you know that 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 is very much about role modeling and you know the power of that is is, is really significant i believe um so yes uh, outreach really really important and and then um contextualized offers and and you know things like that of course at entry are very important i think the other thing that has changed for the better over the years in my field um is that uh, previously you know work experience obviously was was of crucial importance and it was almost like a sort of count the week weeks um exercise and actually of course that disadvantages certain students because you know if you're unable to undertake lots of uh, lots of work experience and go off here there and everywhere and in my case to you know stables and rspca shelters and vet practices um because you know i don't know you're a carer or you're from an underprivileged background and you haven't got the money to be doing that kind of thing you need to work um then of course that disadvantages you so um vet schools have moved you know although there is some requirement for work experience because obviously we need to know that you know you've had some experience with animals um it, it's moved away from huge numbers of weeks which i think is, is a real positive because that was definitely disadvantaging some well I'm, I'm sure there was evidence that that was that may have been disadvantaging some students so um Yes, the offer and the access, you know, sort of admissions and interviews and all those kind of things. It is really important we think about those as well from a widening access point of view. Um, and then absolutely when you arrive at university, you know, um, our curricula, the way we teach, you know, we have to be considering that as well. And, and I think really important that we keep an eye on our um, attrition rates and, and think really hard about um, attainment and achievement and you know our different groups achieving and attaining more than others and, and why is that and you know lots of universities doing work around attainment gaps at the moment as well which is really important. Okay that's good to know. there's a lot to unpick there. A lot, of, a lot another long answer I'm sorry now. <laughs> very very insightful and I think it's really useful to have that university perspective because I suppose being a student at uni you don't really appreciate what the faculty does behind the scenes to try and ensure that the experience is all-inclusive and supportive normally we kind of as students just bury our heads to try and study <laughs> as hard as we can and just get results and just stuff happens you know but going back to what you said about outreach and how peer near peer to peer teaching and mentoring is really important and powerful i i totally agree i remember on the summer schools at newcastle we had some of the things that the kids would say or young adults i should say were talking about how they were from families that no one had ever been to university they could never see themselves being in that position but just having us there saying hey you know there's there's not that much of a difference between you and me you can just do this this and this and maybe try and at least attempt it was i think really powerful and insightful for them i think something that always made me come back to go teach at those summer schools was I think teaching these guys was rewarding in a different sense. You know, I felt like I had sort of an obligation to tell people that a lot of these young adults came in with closed minds about what they could achieve. Mm. And it's not to say that that was necessarily wrong of their own volition, but it was just to open their eyes a bit, say, this is 
an option and there are means to try and get there. And I always felt that the Newcastle Medical School way of doing it, I'm probably a bit biased, was good. The summer yeah. school was always good. And uh, I, I think most of us, all of us had a good time teaching. Yeah. I completely agree. It comes back to this topic of potential, doesn't it? Is that, you know, some sometimes you, you see young people who don't realise the potential they have. And, and even if you can just encourage them, as you say, to open their minds and be open minded about what they might be able to achieve and to aim high, then, you know, you've you, you've made a huge difference to that to that individual's life. And uh, yeah, it's great to hear you really enjoyed it, because I, I think as a student, it's one of the best things you can do is get involved with outreach. I think it's, you know, it's a great way to give back, but also you know it's great for your own skills of course because you're out there you're teaching it's back to where we started isn't it you're teaching and you're you're sort of uh, hopefully discovering a love of of of, of watching other people's light bulb moments and watching other people's alert people learning so um yeah I, I you know it's it's a win-win situation in many ways something that i find is was difficult to address though was when i would have young adults telling me that they just didn't think they could afford it they couldn't afford to spend time away from their home where they were care for their mum or they couldn't imagine living away because of costs. Yeah. As, but obviously you'd probably have to be able to talk about your experiences at the University of Lincoln, but how would you address those barriers as a faculty? Yeah, I mean, I think I think often um, there are um, misunderstandings about the way universities is financed and people, um, you know, that's something we spend a lot of time is talking to young people, but also to parents and carers about, um, you know, how it works, because, you know, whilst there is a debt and there's no getting away from that at the moment, that's that's government policy. Um, of course, you know, when you have to pay that debt off is 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 a long way ahead and, and may never happen for some students, depending on their earnings post post university. So I think it's explaining that it's also explaining, you know, the number of bursaries and, you know, opportunities and scholarships and those kind of things that, that people can 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 obtain. Um, and often that does take an individual having that conversation with the other individual and saying look you know let's talk it through let's talk through your concerns and let's talk about you know how the university or how the system is is set up to help you I completely get that finance is often the first barrier and of course the research tells us that as well that often that is that is the initial barrier to higher education for for many students and uh, yeah it's it's our job again as universities to help educate people and, and help support them and help them understand what support is available out there for them um, because you know it is, it is difficult but of course you know you, you talked about a carer situation you know that carer might make the best doctor in the world because actually you know they've had that amazing experience of you know and that would of course stand them in really good stead for, for, for doing some kind of healthcare training um, and so of course we want those individuals to feel like university is for them um, so yeah it's 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 our job to do that isn't it really that's good to hear so going from I guess we've talked a little bit about pre-application measures during the application process, what kind of things can educators do to make that process fair? Because I know there's been a lot of talk about MMIs, SJT. I'm yep. not sure, you, obviously, you deal with a comprehensive amount of different degrees of admissions, but what do you do system-wide to try and make that fair? Yeah, so, so different universities have different approaches and, um, you know, within access and participation plans, that's one of the things that universities will will write about and, and tell, tell um, you know, the government what, what we are doing to try and ensure that systems and, and approaches are as fair as possible. I guess what, what we always have to remember, no matter what things we put in place, is that we're not starting with a level playing field. So our job is to, is to recognise that and to make reasonable adjustments so that, you know, we can 
um, you know, bring, bring people up who need, who need to be brought up for various different reasons. Um, and so there's huge numbers of things that universities do. So I mentioned contextualised offers. So it may be that some students get slightly different offers um, to others um, for, for, for various um, widening access reasons. Then there's, you know, numbers of things around, you know, admissions processes. So you mentioned MMIs. Obviously, there's, you know, if, if, if you're from a very, um, you know, privileged background, you might pay to go on a course that helps prepare you for MMIs. And that's, you know difficult because other students can't afford that and so you know we need to make sure that everybody has you know information and preparation and understands what the process is um and you know th th there's there's all sorts of other things that people do so universities might have mentoring schemes they might have buddying schemes where they buddy potential applicants up with you know students who are already on the course and actually there's lots of what I've seen recently is a, is a really fantastic growth in individual um, new graduates. I mean, I've seen this in the veterinary world, but I'm sure it's happening in the medical world as well. Setting up um, social media accounts where they talk about their own experiences and talk about you know, what they're doing as a vet now, but also, you know, supporting and, and, and offering advice to applicants, which I think is brilliant to see, because again, it's that near peer approach, which is, you know, really, really use a really positive approach. Um, but also it's fantastic to see that people feel motivated enough and, you know, feel like they want to give back to other students who were maybe in the same position they were in um, when they applied. So yeah, lots of different approaches. Absolutely. And I guess the last thing you, you touched on was supporting students post-application, you know, they're through, they're at university. What sort of things do you try and do to help support students when they're at uni? Yeah, I mean, there's a huge amount of, of university supporters, as I'm sure you're aware from your own experiences, and that's everything from, you know, ensuring that our curricula are appropriate and, you know, taught in an inclusive fashion and an accessible fashion, um, right through to, you know, ensuring that um, our outcomes are equivalent and, you know, supporting students who may have mental health difficulties or other health problems um, or other disabilities, you know, that may be impacting their ability to succeed. So I, I, when I look at it from a sort of strategic perspective, the most important thing to me is that I have data that, that tells me what's going on, because if you don't have those numbers and you don't know what's happening in your own programmes, then it's very difficult to have interventions to, to help you to help you fix fix any issues um, and support those students where perhaps our support is not as good as maybe we think it is. So, um, you know, real, real, real proper data is something we're very good at at my institution, which is fantastic. Um, and, and these data help us to, you know, identify where we might have gaps or, you know, students who aren't being supported in the way they, they they need to be our well-being team are absolutely brilliant at you know identifying and supporting students in difficulty um, and we have specific initiatives for all, all all sorts of different students so care leaving students we have specific initiatives for um, you know students with, with mental health difficulties um, all sorts of different different programs or support mechanisms um, and of course some of those are also peer support which you know I think is a really crucial part of of your university experience I know you know in medical schools and vet schools we usually have families because you know you have you have that buddy or that mentor that you who's, who's in your in your family um and and that's really helpful it's just those informal conversations isn't it sometimes that actually really help you to think well it's not just me who struggled at this point you know that person did as well and and they got through it so i can too so yeah lo lots of different things but the data is definitely crucial yeah definitely and on that note i remember my peer family i had two mums and uh, two sisters, I think. It was a very female-oriented family <laughs> with my feminine side towards the end. So if we go and then talk about some of the 
I would say difficulties or criticisms of whining participation. Yes. Two that I've become aware of are people who report saying perhaps lowering the entry requirements might mean that there could be an effect on the standards of achievement sure. within the cohort that's admitted. So that's one. And the second one being that in itself, whining participation measures are not enough to sort of address diversity issues or in the workforce that come later yeah. on. And I know I have this habit of asking you multiple times. <laughs> we need to improve on this. <laughs> yeah, well, would you mind just telling me what your answers would be to somebody who says, we're afraid that the standards of achievement may drop sure. and we can address the diversity thing after? Yeah. So I think this comes back to the, the word we used at the beginning, which is potential. So, um, you know, just because a student doesn't come in is in quite as with quite as high A-level grades, it doesn't mean they don't have the potential to achieve that excellent outcome at the end of the programme. And so what universities should be doing and what most of us do do is we look for that potential. And that might mean that if you're from a disadvantaged background, you haven't had an opportunity yet to achieve your full potential. So it is absolutely appropriate that you come in with a slightly different academic profile to somebody who has been given that opportunity um, and then when you're with us at university it is our job to ensure and to help you and support you in achieving that potential so you know that's where student support is so important and understanding the diversity of student needs um, and really helping to you know see you through the course and support you so that you can achieve what you need to achieve I guess there's another argument as well around this which is that you know, those three A's or whatever they are now at A-level that you need to get into medical or vet school, is that actually the thing that makes you a great doctor or a vet? Um, and so, of course, admissions now very much look for more than, than just the academic requirements, which means that in many cases, the academic requirements are not, you know, as essential as as other things, i.e., you know, what we were talking about earlier, the ability to be empathic and, you know, to be a good all-round citizen who actually is going to contribute to the to the profession at the end of the day. So, you know, we we, we do as 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 medical and vet dentistry schools, you know, we look for more than just academics. And I think that's really important to remember because, you know, you, you might be absolutely amazing at physics, but that's not necessarily going to make you a brilliant doctor at the end of the day. You know, there's other skills that contribute to that. Um, so yeah, so that would be my view on that. that. That's, that's, that's a good answer. So then the second one, I think this one's probably a bit diff more difficult to tease, was say, back at the very start of our conversation, you mentioned how traditionally it would be maybe Caucasian males that might be applying for med school, for instance. Yeah. Since then, through multiple winding participation measures and access, we've had a lot more females applying yeah. through but there still seems or appears to be like genderification, if we call it, in certain specialties with medicine, just yeah. from my experience. And maybe some people cite that as an example of how widening participation itself is not enough to manifest those outcomes in the workforce. I'm not sure if you have any insight to explain how you might address yeah, you know, well, I, th I think that comes back to what we were talking about a little while ago when we were saying it's not just about, you know, pre-university, university, it's also about post-university. And of course, you know, in your case, training programmes, um, you know, and encouraging, you know, I know a lot of the specialties are doing work, encouraging, you know, diversity of people to, to, to head in that way um, in, in different directions rather than just doing what, you know, is expected maybe or, you know, what traditionally you might see. Uh, it, it does take time, of course, because, you know, um, 
come back to role models role models are really important and if you can't see somebody like you doing that job then it's 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 difficult to make that jump to actually go for it and feel confident in in heading down that route so obviously that's also um you know the, the responsibility of the specialties to really think about that and think about ensuring that actually they are open and diverse and you know um looking looking for a, a wide range of people to join them and of course you know i i, I know very little about postgraduate um the postgraduate world in, in your world and how you apply for different specialties but of course it would be really important that they also think about you know diversity and um widening access and those kind of things which i'm sure they are but um you know it's it, it, it's it's not a it's not a it, if you like widening participation and access continues throughout your life in a way doesn't it because you've you we've got to always be thinking society has always got to be thinking about well where do we want to be and then how do we ensure we have the diversity of people that you know it gets us to where where we want to be so yeah i don't think i've got the answer but um there's a few thoughts there that uh, <laughs> that might help Important you thoughts. think about it as well <laughs> the last few questions i want to ask more about you rather than say winding participation um i think there are going to be a lot of people who might listen to this podcast like i said before who are interested in educating roles mm. but maybe a little bit nervous about them perhaps yeah. because i think they're a little less fully formed and there is some job more job security from my perspective from staying in a clinical role rather than switching to something that you're not quite sure yeah. what to do so to get to your position what did you kind of need from a qualifications or experience point of view yeah, well, I, I think the first thing I would say is that, you know, there are many jobs um, similar to mine, you know, senior jobs, particularly in, in the medical school context that do allow you obviously to continue both clinical and, and non-clinical work. Um, you know, as I explained earlier, for various reasons, I, I stepped back from the clinical work. Um, from the point of view of, of, you know, so you can have the best of both worlds. Um, from the point of view of, of, of me and, and my qualifications, I guess, uh, you know, as ever with any career, it's a bit of a mixture of, of you know, hard work, luck. Um, you know, and 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 a bit of the wind blowing in the right directions on occasions. Um, I think uh, qualifications. I mean, certainly getting my masters in medical education was a brilliant move for me because it really, you know, at the time there were very few veterinary educators who were qualified in, you know, clinical education, and so um, you know, in a, in a sort of specialism approach. So I was quite lucky that that was a bit of a niche and. You know, I was lucky to be part of a new school that was really looking for new ways to teach students and new directions. And so, you know, they really embraced the fact that I had some some background and qualifications in it uh, or was in the process of getting there. And then my PhD was really important because, you know, it, it's I, I guess the way to think about a PhD is that that's your training as a, an, as a researcher and an evaluator. And of course, if you're going to be an academic, that's a really important string to your boat. Even if you're going on a teaching and learning type sort of route, you still need to be able to evaluate and research and publish and talk about, you know, what you've done with your students and, and, and your teams and, and, and what impact that's had. So those skills are really core to what you're, what you're going to do throughout your career. Um, I guess the other thing I'd say is that I think as clinicians, we have a very broad and and flexible skill set and and you know people talk about portfolio careers and certainly in my profession you know lots of vets have, have moved away from you know that clinical work and are doing different roles but perhaps still within the profession and and you know i see people who i think but that's you know it's still your 
clinical skill set. So it's still problem solving, it's communicating, it's dealing with difficult situations. It's all those things that you do every day in, in your clinical role now. Um, and you're picking those skills up and you're just dropping them into a different context. And whilst, you know, it always takes a while to pick up on the nuances of working in a different environment um, and understanding their language, actually those core skills I've found throughout my career have stood me in really good stead you know I, I always say to people you know if I've got I know somebody a bit cross or angry about something I always think to myself well you know they, can, they can't possibly be as difficult as a really angry farmer who doesn't want to do x y and z for his cows which I had to deal with in the past so you know it, it's um it's yeah it's all relative isn't it I think that's what I'm saying <laughs> uh, again very useful to know um, and I guess having that those farmer kind of experiences would have very much helped shape your interactions with people um uh, that's probably a discussion for another podcast <laughs> so finally I guess my last question would be what would be if you had some advice for like early career educators out there from your position what would what would you tell them or like a younger version of yourself if that helps frame your answer yeah I think I think probably similar to, to when what we were talking about earlier about outreach activities is, is to be open-minded you know and and to you know take opportunities as they come even if they don't appear to necessarily fit with how you think your career or your progression is, is is going to happen you know I've done a number of things in my career where I sort of thought well I'll do this because it sounds fun or it sounds interesting you know it's it's not totally relevant but it sounds good and actually it's ended up being really relevant and helpful to my skills or or my my personal development or my professional development so I, I think yeah definitely be open-minded um and and be be kind and generous to other people because you know it, it's it's life is life is a challenge for all of us isn't it and and but there is a way of, of of things coming full circle and if you find you've gone the extra mile for someone and been particularly kind or helpful or you know given back in some way at some point you will get repaid in spades and and you know it, it that's a that's a good general mentality i would argue that uh, that you know if we were all if we're all a bit like that then that that helps the world go around and helps us all to be perhaps it helps it to be a bit of a better place there's a philosophical end for you <laughs> no, i think that's a good end there's some good <laughs> life advice there so thank you very much for your time uh, and okay. like sharing your experiences is there anything that i haven't asked that you would like to mention or I don't think so, no. I think we've covered a lot of ground, haven't we? I think we have. Well, again, yeah, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. And I'm sure many of the audience will do as well. Great. Thanks, Nav. It's been a pleasure talking to you. All right. Take care, Liz. Thanks. So that's it for today's episode of Medical Educate Talks. We hope you've enjoyed it. And if you have, please give us a follow so you can find out when the next episode is released. If you'd like to find out more information about the Developing Medical Educators group, visit medicaleducators.org and we'll see you in the next episode.